Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. and I loved this man so much, we actually did a documentary about him. His name is Edward Partridge. His is a remarkable story. And there's so much there that I could tell you, because like I said, we did a full one-hour documentary on the life of this great man. And you know, what gets me sometimes is that virtually no one knows that much about Edward Partridge. He was the first bishop of this restoration. But I'll tell you why so few people know him outside of his own family. It begins right here. Joseph received a revelation shortly after Edward Partridge joined the church, and he was called as the first bishop and then asked or commanded to accompany Joseph to Independence, Missouri, for the establishment of Zion. And when Joseph and Sidney, and Edward, and others all arrived. Same event I was talking about with Polly Peck Knight. Edward was part of that company that went along first. When they got there and saw the land, Edward was commanded to stay. He left his family, Lydia, behind in Kirtland, and all of the children, and now here he is 900 miles away, and the Lord gives a revelation and says, oh, by the way, you're staying here, Edward, and your family can catch up later. Can you imagine? Only with faith and consecration and sacrifice do people make these kinds of choices. Nonetheless, Edward stayed, and if you read the letters between Edward and his wife, you know just how heart-wrenching that decision was. Nevertheless, Edward Partridge poured out his life, his heart, his fortune. And then, July 20th, 1833, a mob, an angry mob, came into independence of between four and 500 men and angrily demanded that every Mormon in Jackson County had to get out of the state or out of the county. They drafted a resolution. And they took that resolution with over the signature of all the leading citizens of Jackson County and took it to Edward Partridge, William W. Phelps, and others that were considered the leaders of the Latter-day Saints. The demands were completely unreasonable. You have three days. Leave the county. Edward and William and the others, Oliver Cowdery, we can't. We need to consult with Joseph. Where are we going to go? We can't just uproot our families and go. By that time, the church owned well over a 1,000 acres of land. Where were they going to go? They couldn't just leave it. The men asked for three months to consider the demands and decide a course. That was denied them. They asked for 10 days to make a decision. That, too, was denied. They had 15 minutes to decide what they were going to do with over 1,200 people and their possessions. Well, the mob didn't like that answer. They went back to the large gathering at the courthouse. These men who came were just a delegation. 
And the men, the, the entire body of Jackson County citizens took offense at that answer, broke into groups. One group went to the printing office and tore it down. William W. Phelps tried to get his family out before the mob got there, but the mob came. And I don't remember Alex Bach can tell you, but they pulled the corner post out of the printing office, causing the roof to collapse. They pushed the printer, they pied the type, and they shoved the printer out the window. Uh, printing press, that's what I was looking for. And when they collapsed the house, two of William W. Phelps's youngest children were underneath. Fortunately, they were not injured. The other group from the courthouse, however, went to Edward Partridge's home. One of his daughters mentions that mother saw them coming and got us out of the house. We knew something was wrong, but we didn't know what. The mob came and grabbed Edward. This would have been right near the Temple Block there in Jackson County in Independence. They took Edward and took him over to the public square, which is a considerable distance away. And there they made the following demand, and the accounts differ. They took Edward Partridge and Charles Allen and gave them an ultimatum that they must renounce the Book of Mormon and renounce their allegiance to Joseph Smith or else leave the county or worse. Bishop Partridge, standing and facing a mob, uncertain of what they were going to do, knowing their hate and their anger, stated, he was not conscious of having injured anyone in the county. Therefore, he said, quoting, I could not consent to leave it. In other words, I will not renounce the Book of Mormon. I will not renounce Joseph Smith. Do with me as you will. The infuriated mob began to strip his clothes off of him. And then they tarred and feathered him. Bishop Partridge stood there and let them abuse him with such dignity that the mob became ashamed at their treatment of this great and good man and slunk off like the cowards that they were. That would not be the end of it for Bishop Partridge. The saints were driven out of Jackson County into Clay County. Once they were there in the winter of 1833-34, Bishop Partridge suffered along with all the rest. And he traveled up and down the riverbanks. And if you come with me on a church history tour, I'll show you where this happened. You'll see the ground that they lived in. Every hovel, every dirt shack, every cave, every tent, every place that the saints could take up lodging 1,200 Latter-day Saint refugees spent the winter of 1833-34, and Bishop Partridge, bless his soul, was their bishop. He was their ministering angel. Eventually, when the saints made their way to northern Missouri and Davis County, and violence erupted there, once again, Bishop Partridge was there. He was driven out of far west and escaped to Quincy along with all the rest. When the saints finally made it to Nauvoo, Edward Partridge was still serving. 
The prophet Joseph called him into the office and he began doing the work of writing the history. And then while in the process of building a home for his family, Bishop Partridge became ill and passed away, dying in 1840. He died a martyr to the faith, having wasted and wore out his life in the service of the Lord, in ministering to the saints to the very last extremity. He was the first bishop of the church. He was one of the Lord's, by the Lord's own words, one of the Lord's great men. And yet, so few today know who this great man is, Bishop Edward Partridge. Another story, I hope you don't mind. I've been going about 30 minutes now. This is a little different than the other stories. I've sat in a lot of fast and testimony meetings, and I've heard a lot of testimonies, thousands of testimonies over the years, but the ones that really stir my soul, the ones that move me, are not thanktimonies, and they're not travel logs, and they're not speeches. They're testimonies. Testimonies of based on real experiences and people's knowledge of the Savior, of the restoration of the Book of Mormon, of the prophet Joseph Smith. There is power in a real testimony, especially of the restored gospel and the Savior. And this is one of those examples. September 1835, two men rode on horseback a distance of 25 miles from Manaway, Ohio, to the small community of Kirtland. Now, one of those young men was a young student enrolled at Oberlin College, a Presbyterian school there in Ohio. He was beginning a new semester of studies at Oberlin, and he came from something of a learned and privileged background. He was not just an educated farm boy. He had some book learning behind him. And he was coming to Kirtland to study Hebrew with the prophet's Hebrew school. Now, being something of a child of letters, here he is traveling with this other man. Now, this other fellow was quite a bit older. He was a rough-hewn frontiersman but he was also one of the first members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As the two men rode together, the young student listened as the older man expressed himself about the Savior and the Restoration, the Prophet Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. And at first, the young college student treated what he said with contempt because the, the older fellow well, he, I suppose I could say a lot like me, couldn't express himself eloquently, was rough around the edges, his grammar was not correct, his manner of expression wasn't polished, whatever. So at first, the young student listened to him like, oh man, what's this hillbilly got to say? But the farther they rode, the more the words of the man began to penetrate the young man's heart. There was a power behind his words. He found himself unable to resist the knowledge that this man was a man of God. He found himself so 
overwhelmed, pricked in his heart. He said, quote, I felt pricked in my heart. Though his language may not have been the most refined, the man possessed a mind of deep thought and rich intelligence. That young man was so deeply affected by the testimony of that old frontiersman that he joined the church. 64 years later, that young student would say, now an old man himself, all the circumstances of my first and last meeting with him are as clear to my mind as if it were an occurrence of but yesterday. He appeared to me then to be a remarkable man, and that impression has remained with me ever since. This, that horseback ride, and the testimony of that simple, rough-hewn frontiersman, he said, quote, was the turning point in my life. What impressed me most was his absolute sincerity, his earnestness, and spiritual power. The young man went before the Lord that night and asked if what the man had said was true, and the Lord confirmed it, and the young man was subsequently baptized and went on to the same greatness as the man who had mentored him, the young student, converted on horseback by the testimony of a rough-hewn frontiersman, was Lorenzo Snow. And the apostle, the frontiersman, was David W. Patton. This last story I have shared all over the world. I travel, I go a few places around the world, and whether my group that I'm traveling with are Latter-day Saints or Presbyterians or Methodists or whatever, it doesn't matter. I share this story because to me, it has power, it has meaning, and it is a great lesson in life. Mary Bathgate. Mary Bathgate was from Scotland. And she spent her whole life, this little spit of a woman, working in the coal mines of Scotland. Late in her life, Mary Bathgate was introduced to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and joined the church. And like so many others, was filled with the spirit of the gathering and wanted to come to Zion. That was her overwhelming desire. And so again, giving up hearth and home, family, kith and kin, and everything she had, eventually Mary Bathgate was able to make her way over the ocean and gather in Iowa City. She was assigned to the handcart company of Captain Dan MacArthur. But Mary Bathgate was too old to pull a handcart. She was considered like she shouldn't even be out there. She was so old that she was assigned to be the leader of the footmen. Mary Bathgate was right around 60, 61 years old. Anyway, Mary Bathgate became the leader of the footmen. And so every morning, not pulling a handcart, she and the other elderly in the group, in the company, would start out ahead of the handcarts. And Mary had this most unusual habit. Every morning, she would start down the road. She would swing her cane over her head and she would cry, hurry for him, Kurtz, and off she'd go. And they'd go somewhere down the road, and then the handcarts would catch up with them. I love this. One day, Mary Bathgate was walking along. She sat down on a rock to rest, and a big old rattlesnake struck her 
in the back of the lake. Now, with her was a young girl. Mary felt that, of course, the snake struck just below the knee on the back of the leg. The leg began to swell. Mary tied a tourniquet around the leg and sent the girl to get Captain MacArthur. Captain MacArthur and others of the brethren came as fast as they could. Captain MacArthur says in the company journal that when he reached Mary, her leg was swollen to four times its normal size. That's right out of the journal and was turning black. He said they immediately cut the wound open where the snake had struck and squeeze out all the bad blood. And Captain MacArthur said there was a lot. And at that point, Mary Bathgate said, give me a blessing. I have faith in the priesthood of God. Captain MacArthur said she did have faith. So the brethren laid their hands on Mary's head and promised her she would be well. At the conclusion of the blessing, Captain MacArthur said, now, Mary, get in the sick wagon. You have to understand trail, the Pioneer Trail. Almost everyone walked. It was kind of like a badge of shame to ride in the wagons because that overtaxed the animals. The animals were carrying their food and supplies or riding in the handcarts and being pulled by people. People were expected to walk. And so they, it was considered something like a badge of shame to ride in the sick wagon when you had two legs and could walk. And she said, no, I'm not getting in the sick wagon. And Captain MacArthur said, you are getting in the sick wagon. And Mary called witnesses to say, I want you to witness I am getting in the sick wagon because the captain ordered it, but I'm only doing so because of that cursed snake, not my own will. <laughs> Mary got in the sick wagon. And sure enough, she was really sick the rest of the day. But the following morning, when the call came for the handcart peoples to move out, Mary Bathgate Shelley set out down the road, swung her cane over her head and cried, Hurry for handcarts! And down the road she went, all the way to Salt Lake City. Sometimes, living the gospel, we sometimes get the wrong idea that it's just all drudgery and endure to the end, I have to do this. We are what President Hinckley called sour-faced pickle suckers. But Mary Bathgate Shelley is one of my heroes. Endure the toughest of times and do it with cheer, do it with a smile, and do it with enthusiasm. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <music>